Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I am ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm Mary Bruce, our senior congressional correspondent. And Mary's still getting used to the new music. I forgot about the new tunes the at new the top. Tunes, the new tunes. Um, we are keeping the new tunes even as John Carl uh, does not join us this particular <laughs> week. But Mary, thanks for being here. we got a lot going on. We have a presidential field that is now... Uh, at about two dozen. It is about it is bigger than any presidential field in history. We are closing the book, we think, finally on the announcement phase. Uh, and as part of that, we're going to be checking in with one of the more unlikely Democratic candidates who has claimed to, to have uh, have a spot reserved for him on the debate stage uh, at the end of June. Andrew Yang just grew a big crowd in New York City. We'll talk to him about his plan to give every American in the country, everyone, $1,000 a month just because. You, you get $1,000. You get $1,000. <laughs> Oprah may have a new favorite. I know. Uh, speaking of uh, that, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the campaign resets of uh, Beto O'Rourke and Kamala Harris as things have come into view around Vice President Biden. But, uh, Mary, let's start on the Hill where the oversight wars are officially beginning or begun. Uh, we're well underway. Mary, what do you make of this? We now It's become quite confusing to follow all of the action in court and in Congress. Uh, subpoenas are flying. Uh, threats are flying. Uh, stonewalling is happening. And the end result is going to be what? Oh, I wish I knew. Oh, um, but we certainly have, you know, we've seen things really reach a, a boiling point, I think, between congressional Democrats and the White House. You now openly have Democratic leaders saying that they feel that we are in a constitutional crisis. The question is, what are they going to do about it? Um, it is clear that Democrats still are very hesitant uh, to use the I word. They do not want to march towards impeachment, even though you have uh, many even Democratic members saying that that's where this needs to go. They're playing that cautiously. But it's tough when they are saying this is a constitutional crisis. Well, then what are you going to do about it? And so you're seeing, um, you know, the many subpoena requests continue. You're seeing now uh, some action in the courts. We saw that uh, this week where a judge is going to have to decide uh, sometime in the coming days about this subpoena request from the House Oversight Committee looking for documents about the the president's financial records, um, which will give us sort of a taste for where this may go, because ultimately a lot of this is going to play out in the courts. Um, But it is a new tone up on the Hill for sure. You even have, you know, Democrats keeping every tool at their disposal. There's been discussion of inherent contempt this week, which for those who yeah, may not be one. fully yeah. nerding out on this yet, uh, that is a, a, an old uh, regulation essentially that gives members of Congress the power, if they want to, to not only fine people who are you know, flagrantly disobeying all of these subpoena requests, but they can actually go and you know, imprison them. Now, the fact that anyone is even talking about this is pretty remarkable. It hasn't you know, been used in more than 80 years. I doubt that Gerald Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, is, is you know, looking around for places where they can imprison the attorney general on, on Capitol Hill. But that's the kind of stuff that's on the table right now. They could impose fines to get uh, members of the Trump administration to, tr- to comply with some of these requests. But you just have this complete standoff between the Democrats and the president who has you know, issued this blanket 
declaration that they are not going to play ball. And it's interesting to me to watch this play out too, Mary, because the Democrats seem to be They've got all sorts of all sorts of oversight requests um, that are in keeping with what Congress does. And you're asking for records. You're asking for things. Some of them in policy areas. They're not being frustrated mm-hmm. on health care, on immigration. A lot of it is very personal about the president. And at the same time, they recognize and they have said publicly that they view the president's stance on this as baiting them. It's mm-hmm. almost like, as Nancy Pelosi has been saying, he is looking for them to go down the impeachment road, and they don't want to take this bait. But man, he just keeps throwing them out there. And and I wonder how much longer they can resist if the true answer for oversight is actually to go down at least the, the initial road of impeachment. Yeah, look, Nancy Pelosi says that the president is goading them into impeachment. And I think politically, the president thinks that it would be good for him to especially head into an election with Democrats, you know, in the throes of some impeachment process. Uh, Democrats don't want to take that bait, but yet they feel they have to do something. And so, you know, acting to hold the attorney general in contempt of Congress, that's something they can do. You know, fighting this out in court, that's something they can do. Talking about inherent contempt, that's something else they can do. And it is a real risk for Democrats. And they know this. They feel that they have to somehow satisfy the Democratic base that is demanding that they do something uh, aggressive to hold this president accountable and to fulfill their oversight authorities. But at the same time, Democrats are well aware they could overplay their hand here very easily and just boost the president politically. And Democrats also know that, look, let's be honest, a lot of voters, this is not the top of of their mind right now. They want Democrats to be talking about the issues. And Democrats also want to be talking about the issues. They want to talk about health care and the environment and all of those things that voters uh, often, so often, make their decisions on. Um, So Democrats are, they're kind of stuck in many ways. And uh, one one little fight that I thought was really intriguing um, that seems to be settled now is is between the Senate Intelligence Committee, controlled by Republicans, and Donald Trump Jr. The fact that he was subpoenaed for his testimony uh, struck me as maybe something that breaks through a lot of this noise, because that means a Republican chairman had to sign off on it. Um, Obviously, Chairman Burr has gotten a lot of heat over that decision, and now we understand that he will come in uh, to answer questions on a limited range of topics for a limited amount of time. But Mary, you're up there every day, and you're talking to Republicans on the Hill about their sense of this. Was Burr by himself on this, or, or, or do some of his colleagues at least quietly support the idea of getting answers to the questions that Democrats and even some Republicans are posing. Yeah, look, this fight put Republicans in a really awkward position. They were essentially stuck between the president's son and the Republican-controlled Senate committee. And a lot of Republicans said, look, they support the chairman. Um, I talked to some who openly would say that. Yeah, they think the chairman's doing a good job. There are more questions they need answered. Um, And then you have the other Republicans who came out and very publicly backed Donald Trump Jr. You had Lindsey Graham coming out and saying he shouldn't even comply with this subpoena request. You know, it's just a circus. Don't do it. Um, You you had uh, Senator John Cornyn, a Republican top Republican, coming out and saying that, you know, that this is just political theater, essentially. And now it does seem they have struck a deal, right? Donald Trump Jr. is going to come back up and speak privately behind closed doors in this interview that will be limited somewhat. Um, But that has allowed this stalemate to end. Uh, But what's interesting is that you now see Donald Trump Jr. saying, look, he's going to pay back those Republicans who are loyal to him in this fight. He says he will remember that. He will pay back the favor come the 2020 campaigns, which is a way of saying thank you, but also a way of saying, hey, he's been keeping tabs on who has been on his side and who has not. Yeah, not not very subtle at all. Uh, and then married to 2020. Uh, by the end of the week this week, 
we expect the field to expand to 23 or so. It all depends on how you count, but 23 or so major candidates for president of the United States on the Democratic side. We know there are only 20 spots on the debate stage in a couple of weeks. And we mentioned our interview coming up with Andrew Yang, who says he's got at least one of them. Uh, I, I'm intrigued by what this what this combined with Joe Biden's entry into the race a couple of weeks ago has done. It does seem like there's a focus now that we have a front runner for the nomination. And some people who might have been a front runner or might be considered a front runner in an, in an alternate political universe, or they're already setting the reset button. And yeah. we're in May of 2019. We're already hitting that button. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, it, it is not unusual for there to be a certain amount of you know recalibration happening. Um, what is kind of surprising is that you have some big names that were getting a lot of attention, like Beto O'Rourke, coming out and very publicly sort of admitting some missteps and, and promising to do things a little bit differently. Uh, he actually sat down with our friends over at The View. Uh, take a quick listen to how he answered some of this. You said you, quote, sometimes help raise your kids. These are things in my mind that a female candidate wouldn't be able to get away with. Do you think you can get away with more because you're a man? And do you have any regrets about launching on the cover of Vanity Fair? You're right. Um, there are things that I have been privileged to do in my life that, that others cannot. Um, and, and I think the more that I travel and listen to people and learn from them, the clearer that comes becomes to me. And Mary, he, just the fact that he went on The View is, yeah. is an acknowledgement of a new campaign strategy. This is a guy that he, he got in with the highest of expectations. Oprah, among others, practically begging him to get in the race. Uh, and since then, he has been working hard in, and working countertops hard and jumping up and, <laughs> and talking to lots of small groups, but doing almost no national mm-hmm. interviews. He felt like that wasn't the, the key to success. Now he, he is recalibrating. And, and part of it is just acknowledging that you know, I would call the presumptuousness of those quotes to Vanity Fair, I'm in it to win it, man. I'm just born for it. That just did not come out well, and it seems to have contributed in, a, in to a to a, an initial launch that's only gone south. Yeah, some of that fell flat, and I do think you know you mentioned Joe Biden getting into the race, and it does make sort of everyone else have to play the game a little differently. I think what we've also seen over the last you know couple of weeks is that. We're moving on past the introduction phase of this and into the substance phase. And it's one thing to come out and do splashy magazine interviews and, you know, be jumping up on countertops in Iowa and New Hampshire. It's another thing when people start saying, "Okay, you're making promises. How are you going to fulfill that? What is your plan? What's the substance? And you're seeing that. And I think that's why you're seeing some candidates having to admit that, uh, you know, it's time to sort of change the game a little bit. You're all, you know, Beto O'Rourke isn't the only one hitting the reset button. You're also seeing Kamala Harris sort of admitting that she may need to do things a little bit differently. She's sort of embracing her prosecutorial skills, saying she needs to go after the president a little tougher. Um, It will be interesting to see the way these campaigns shift and how successfully they can shift because it's time to sort of get into some of the meat. Yeah, and and the battle for attention is real. Those folks that we just mentioned are going to make the debate stage, but some people won't. And and there's others that are going to have to find a way to break through in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Joe Biden does not have to have that particular challenge. He has, Mary, I would admit to my surprise, solidified his status as a front runner over the last couple of weeks, Um, not just in polling, although that's a piece of it, but also in the way that other candidates are responding and reacting to him. Donald Trump 
um, doing probably his best right now to see Joe Biden as the nominee, whether or not that's a p- smart political strategy. I know his president's advisors don't think so. Uh, by singling him out, it helps keep the focus on I'm sure Biden. Biden's team is very grateful for all of those tweets that, that keep that fight up between the two of them. Yeah, they like those attacks. They like being attacked by, by President Trump. Uh, he's now been through all the early voting states. He just wrapped up a New Hampshire trip. And yeah, that's a that's a good fight that he can look past the primary. A maybe less welcome fight, though, for the former vice president, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This was an this was an interesting skirmish that all started with a, a Reuters article that quoted a, a Biden environmental advisor saying that he would take a middle of the road approach to uh, environmental issues, continuing the legacy of uh, of Obama, um, but um, making sure that you focused on things that could get done, as opposed to say, hey, things like the Green New Deal. Uh, well, Biden's folks immediately said, well, we're not middle of the road, we're not middle of the road. But that quote got a lot of pickup. And among those who noticed was AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez herself, who says, you know, I'll be darned if I'm going to go to someone that tried and couldn't get it done before and, and for this middle of the road. And, and let's unpack the vice president's response, because he didn't he wasn't happy about hearing uh, of this critique from AOC. I've never been in the middle road on the environment. And I tell her to check, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the statement that I made and look at my record. Look at my record. I, it, I, am I the only one that viewed this as maybe a little bit dismissive? I mean, there's a lot of energy in this party, a lot of movement in this party, and um, a lot of new ideas in this party that are being brought forward. Can the answer from Joe Biden be, look at my record? Well, I think that's an answer you're going to hear from him on many issues, right? He's going to say, look at my record over and over again. That record is an asset, but it's also a liability because everyone is looking at that record. And now it's a different Democratic Party. And what really stood out to me about this sort of skirmish between uh, Ocasio-Cortez and the, and the former vice president is that this is the challenge that we are now seeing a lot of Democrats face. Biden is going to have to tangle with the fact that you have some members of his own party that are sort of going to try and and drag him further to the left. I mean, she is championing really tough, aggressive action to counter climate change. And she's made very clear, you know, you said, I'll be darned. She used a stronger word than that, uh, that she's going to, it is a family (laughs) podcast, that she is going to really try and, you know, hold leaders of her own party uh, accountable on this. And, And Joe Biden's going to have to deal with that. It's not just pushback that he's getting from the president. It's internally in his own party. And yet Joe Biden is able to run in a lane that almost no one else is running in. I I talked to a top Republican official about it this week and kind of handicapping the field. And the point that he made is, you know, if you've got 19 or 20 people all running to the left, why would Joe Biden try to chase him there? He's not going to get there anyway. And to the point that has circulated pretty widely widely in political circles the last few weeks, Mary, uh, Twitter is not the Democratic Party writ mm-hmm. large. That's And you were out there as, as I was at that campaign launch yeah. in Pittsburgh. That was not an AOC crowd. That yeah. was not about this new generation of Democrats. And if those are the folks that can constitute the Democratic primary voters in lots of places, keeping in mind you don't need to win 50 or 60 percent in a field of 22 or 23, uh, that's that's a pretty strong argument. Joe Biden may be the one who doesn't need to, to get himself pulled into the fights with the left. Yeah. And Joe Biden isn't necessarily going after that crew, right? Joe Biden is trying to appeal to a lot of Trump voters right now. Joe Biden is making very clear that he's targeting those working class, you know, white voters who the party lost in many ways in 2016. And he thinks he has a real shot at reclaiming some of those voters. Um 
I think also that the vice president and you know all Democrats are aware that that a lot of Democratic voters are simply looking for whoever can win, whoever can take on Trump. And what's interesting right now is that you see the vice president talking a lot about Donald Trump, and then you see all of the other Democratic candidates talking a lot about Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is early; the field is still narrowing itself down, but. Joe Biden is made clear who he's targeting and what voters he's going after. And I think he's hoping that the rest of the party will in some ways follow. And in terms of what the rest of the party will see, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to a man who said that people in the television are going to watch that first debate and wonder who that Asian guy sitting next to Joe Biden is and what he's doing on the debate stage. Presidential candidate Andrew Yang coming up after the break. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are pleased to be joined by presidential candidate and tech entrepreneur Andrew Yang who says he will be at the first presidential debate uh, come June. He is qualified, he says, by the donor and the polling thresholds, and he's coming fresh off a big rally in New York City. Mr. Yang, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Sure thing. And I want to dive right in with one of your signature proposals, because it's been in the news uh, from some of the other candidates as well. Uh, Universal income policy. You have this universal basic income proposal to to give every American over the age of 18, up to retirement age, $1,000 a month. And and you'd pay for it in part by taxing big tech companies, Amazon, Google, Facebook. Elizabeth Warren, one of your rivals, wants to break up these companies. Uh, But it looks like you want to tax them instead. Would you be in favor of breaking up these companies? Well, I would certainly be in favor of re-examining these companies and see what we can do to address some of the uh, oversized clout they've developed and also some of the distortions. What concerns me most about the social media companies, aside from our democratic processes, is that they're having a clearly negative effect on the mental health and well-being of our young people, teenage girls in particular. There's been a spike in anxiety and depression among that population that's coincident with smartphone use and, and social media apps. And breaking up these companies doesn't necessarily address that problem. If you say that Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram all have different owners and our kids are still depressed, our kids are still depressed. So there, there are a number of things we need to dig into that are actually a bit more sophisticated than a call to break them up simply, though I would not rule out having them divest parts of their businesses. I'm a little confused about that, though. So if the, if, if the answer is not to necessarily break them up, if the proposal is just very simple, that these, these companies are too big, do you agree with that? Do you think they should be broken up, as some of your rivals think? I think in many cases they are too big. And yes, in many cases we would be well served by having them break themselves up into different parts of their businesses, yes. What I'm suggesting is that that doesn't actually solve some of the problems. Um, the ownership structure of these apps does not influence the mental health of our well, of our, and well-being of our young people. So it's, it's more nuanced than just breaking them up. It doesn't actually solve many of the problems. So then back to this concept of a universal income. If you are going to be giving every American $1,000 a month, that's a lot of money. And you're looking to take some of that money from these big companies. You've called it the tech check. Uh, how, you know, there is no such thing really as free money, right? So how do you fund this? Where does the money come from? And is tech really able to cover all of that? Well, if you look up Amazon, one of our biggest companies with a trillion dollar market cap paid zero in federal taxes last year. And that's not an anomaly. Their lifetime tax rate is only 3%. Uh, so you have to look up and say, okay, where is the money going to come from in an age where Amazon is going to invest billions of dollars in AI and lead to the closing of 30% of our Main Street stores and malls and the American public at zero in return? So 
So what we have to do is we have to modernize our economy and join every other nation in the developed world and have a value-added tax, which would then give the American public a tiny slice of every Amazon transaction, every Google search, every Facebook ad, and eventually every robot truck mile. And a value-added tax at even half the European level, because of the fact our economy is up to a record $20 trillion, would generate over $800 billion in new revenue, which combined with the economic growth from putting $1,000 a month into everyone's hands, plus cost savings and value gains from having a stronger, better educated, healthier, and mentally healthier population is enough to pay for $1,000 a month per adult. This is the trickle-up economy from people and families and communities up. Now, will you still be able to tax these big tech companies to pay for this universal basic income if you're breaking up some of those big companies? Yeah, the the relative size of the businesses don't actually change that much uh, depending upon their ownership structures. If you were to have Amazon divest parts of its businesses, the level of net sales that are going through Amazon stays more or less the same. I want to address something that um, I have found kind of surprising about your campaign. I'm sure you're surprised about it as well. It seems like that the Yang Gang hashtag was hijacked at one point by the alt-right, and you've got a, a good degree of support from some very unsavory corners of the Internet and beyond. What do you think is behind that, and what is the message to people, uh, white supremacists and the like, who say, you know what, I like some of the things Andrew Yang is saying? Well, I've completely disavowed any support from anyone who has any sort of hateful or Uh, racist ideology. Uh, I stand for the opposite of that. I'm the son of immigrants myself. And so you can't control necessarily all the people that decide that your candidacy is worth supporting, but I do not want their support. And I'm happy to say that, uh, as you're suggesting, the Yang Gang is much, much more than that. Well, we just had this several thousand person rally in New York City last night, and it was a wonderfully diverse and energized crowd. You are drawing some serious crowds. that may, I think, be surprising a lot of people. There is there is sort of this kind of below-the-radar phenomenon that's happening here. What do you? Why do you think that is? What do you think is behind this momentum that you're seeing? Well, it's the same reason I made the Democratic primary debates uh, by both individual contributions and polling, is that I'm talking about the lived experience of many, many Americans, where I say, look, are your stores and malls closing? Are you making less? Do you feel like your your future is in jeopardy because the economy is changing beneath your feet? And many Americans can relate to those statements. These are the actual problems that got Donald Trump elected in 2016. We'd automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, all the states you needed to win. And now my friends in Silicon Valley know that we're going to do the same thing to millions of retail workers, call center workers, truck drivers, and on and on. So I'm talking about the experiences that Americans are facing. Uh, they get it. And because of that, they're coming out for my campaign. We talk about this this debate, and there are now 23, 24 Democratic candidates. You say you've got a ticket. Um, I think, as you've noted, a lot of people may be surprised to see you up there, maybe next to a Joe Biden. But I want to contrast your message with what you'll hear from some of the other folks. You have mayors, governors, senators, House members, a former vice president of the United States that are all going to be able to say, look, I know I can get elected because I've been elected before. Andrew Yang's never been elected to anything. What's your message back to a Joe Biden, a guy that has been elected multiple times, including as vice president of the United States over a career of more than four decades? Well, I think it's up to the American people who they want to support. And certainly someone serving in the the public sector for a number of years is very important to some people. Um, But I'd suggest that for other people, they're looking up and saying the government is decades behind the curve 
when it comes to various challenges, technology in particular, and it could be that someone with a different background or skill set might be just what the country needs. Uh, that's the wonder of democracy. It's up to the American people what kind of background they want to consider. You're putting out some pretty, you could say, uh, you know, unusual proposals. It's not just this idea of basic income. You're talking about free marriage counseling for all, lowering the voting age to 16. Uh, you want to pay college athletes. Would you call yourself a disruptor? Uh, I'd call myself a very pragmatic realist about what we're facing in 2019, 2020. We have to stop pretending that it still is 1960s or 1970s, and that if we tweak a dial here and there, that it's going to return us to the halcyon days of some previous era. And that's something, unfortunately, many Democrats are just as guilty about as Republicans, where uh, I like to quote my friend Eric Weinstein, who said that we never knew that capitalism was going to get eaten by its son, technology. We're entering an era of self-driving cars and artificial intelligence, what experts are calling the fourth industrial revolution, and operating as if it's still the 1980s has going, is going very quickly from dangerous to disastrous. I've noticed that some of, at some of your events, there's a weird chant that's been breaking out, PowerPoint. PowerPoint, PowerPoint. <laughs> and and it, it, it's a riff, I, I take it in part on your vow to, to make a State of the Union address into a PowerPoint presentation. I'm curious what your PowerPoint skills are like. How good are you at PowerPoint? What are your tricks of the trade? And what else could, would you do as president to bring technology not just into to governance, but into communicating with the public? Oh, well, I certainly wouldn't put my PowerPoint skills up there with some of the <laughs> other folks I know. Um, and as you must know some. You must know some mad skills of PowerPointers. I've got to <laughs> say, <laughs> I really don't. Just like some go-to animations uh, and so some timing. Uh, but um, you know, my PowerPoint pledge is that the State of the Union will be about updating the American people on our mental health and freedom from substance abuse, our quality-adjusted health and life expectancy. America's life expectancy has been declining for the last three years because of surges in suicides and drug overdoses. That's unheard of. Uh, the last time our life expectancy declined for three years in a row was the Spanish flu of 1918. And how this is not a red flag to every sector of society is beyond me. We're, we're cheerleading record GDP while our people are dying. And then we wonder why Donald Trump is our president. Uh, we have to get our acts together and actually focus on what's important to us. And that's what the PowerPoint chant is all about. It's like what is important to us, how long we're living, how our kids are doing, uh, and things that would actually set us up in the future. You mentioned the president there. Uh you know, obviously right now it is early on. We are still in the, the, the primary stage. A lot of focus is on this debate. But at some point, if you are to be the, the Democratic nominee, you're going to have to take on the president. Uh there's been some question and criticism that you may be too nice to take on Trump. What do you say to that? Well, I think the American people are thrilled to advance real solutions that will improve their lives. That's actually the antithesis of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is about uh, bluster and garbage solutions that are meant to appeal to our emotions. And I'm trying to make people's lives better. And Americans love that. Many, many Trump voters love that. I've had Trump voters in Iowa come up to me and say that I'm what I what they were hoping for when they voted for Donald Trump. Uh, and, and so uh, I think the contrast is going to work wonders. Uh, and anyone who's running for president has to have a lot of conviction. Uh, you know, I would not be where I am today if I wasn't willing to fight for what I believe in. What do you think they mean when they say that, that you're what they were hoping for when they voted for Trump? 
Well, a lot of people have fallen into despair that our government is not actually addressing our needs, that the feedback mechanisms are broken. And so they took a chance on Donald Trump as someone who would change things up and maybe have government moving in a different direction. And then now they feel like he's failed them in that, that he's disappointed them. Um, But then I come along and say, look, I get it. We automated away millions of manufacturing jobs and your communities have never recovered. People are suffering and we can't magically heal that. What we can do is acknowledge it, uh, have all Americans share in the bounty of our progress and start having a dividend of $1,000 a month, which will help millions of Americans help manage a better transition into the future. And they hear that and they say, okay, he's acknowledging our problems too. He has a different set of solutions. These solutions actually sound more uh, exciting and plausible to me than the nonsense that Donald Trump is doing. And this is from Trump voters. <laughs> you know? So, so uh, you know, again, the contrast is going to be one that's going to be very, very strong for the Democratic Party. And I'm already drawing in Trump voters, libertarians, independents. I can build a much broader base and higher ceiling coalition than just about any other Democratic candidate. All right. Andrew Yang, presidential candidate. Look forward to checking in with you down the road and look forward to seeing you on that debate stage in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you both so much. So, Mary, what do you think? I mean, it's it's intriguing to me how many different Democrats will say they are the opposite of Donald Trump. Uh, And and as a 44-year-old Asian-American entrepreneur um, who kind of looks and talks and acts and has acted a lot differently than Donald Trump, maybe Andrew Yang is one answer, but there sure are a lot who are casting themselves the same way. Yeah, there are plenty of people who are sort of trying to grab that same spotlight. But what's interesting is that he's also saying he has some similarities to Donald Trump, right? They're both outsiders, although (laughs) on very different ends of the spectrum, but that he can appeal to people who maybe are looking for not a Joe Biden, not someone who brings a lot of Washington experience, but someone who can come to it with a different uh, perspective. I do wonder if we are going to see a PowerPoint on the debate stage. That is my big remaining question. I, I wish he'd brag on his skills a little more. I'm terrible at I mean, PowerPoint. You, I, awful, awful. <laughs> um, but you, it is interesting. You don't see many other campaigns where you not only hear chants of PowerPoint, but also people holding up signs that just say math on them. <laughs> He's like making America nerdy again. And there's a lot of, of people who are being attracted to that. I mean, there is something going on here with, with Andrew Yang. Uh, it's just a question of whether he can tap into it and what he's going to do with it, where it goes from here. And I, I legitimately am curious as to how this is going to be received when that first debate happens, because now that we are well north of 20 candidates, it means that those left out are going to be very substantial people. You're going to almost certainly have a senator or an ex-senator or a governor or a former governor, a house member or a former house member among those who say, we don't have room for you because we already have 20 candidates. And by the way, one of them is this guy, Andrew Yang, who you've never seen on a ballot anywhere before. And while he has drawn you know, a good size of, of interest to his campaign, is by no means a household name. And uh, what it's going to mean to have him up there, people are going to be, I think, maybe a little bit of a head-scratching moment in that introductory opportunity he has. But that's his whole point in some ways, right, is that there are so many options uh, if you are a voter who's looking for someone with Washington experience, if you're looking for a seasoned politician. There are plenty of those candidates. If you're looking for the opposite of that, if you're looking for someone with some pretty, you know, what I think we can all agree are some outside-of-the-box ideas, well, he would argue, you know, then, then he he's someone that you want to hear from. Yeah, and it's and it's going to be intriguing to watch in, in all the different directions this could break down. All these policy ideas he has, the, the lower voting age and this $1,000 a month. I mean, people 
people be clear on what this is. This is just a check that the government would cut to every American citizen every month, no matter how rich or how poor you are, you get this check $1,000 a month. Yeah, and, and that sounds really good. The question, of course, and I don't know if we actually heard a clear answer to this, is how do you pay for yeah, that? That yeah. is a lot of money. Uh, it sounds good, but the you know the devil's always in the details. Yeah, like you say, as you say, no no such thing is is free in this world. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. All right, that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Thank you, Mary, for so ably settling in for our. Thank you for having me. Missing John Carl. Thank you, thank you, Mary, and thank you to Susie Liu for filling in for Trevor Hastings. Thanks to our team, Avery Miller, Angie Yak, and to Adam Kelsey for helping book this interview. We will be back next time with another edition of Powerhouse Politics.